Brought to you by Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine for gamers of all types and listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tomes Amazon Store. This is Owen K.C. Stevens, author of The Guide to Absalom, and you're listening to The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. In this episode, we're getting our story on with a game industry veteran who's worked on Earth Dawn, Mutant City Blues, Feng Shui, the Star Trek RPG, the Fiendish Codex 2. We can keep going, but you also did the... <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a really long yes. list. <laughs> this podcast <laughs> consists entirely of my resume. Good night. <laughs> but probably points that we're going to hit on here are the Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, Hamlet's Hit Points, and the Dungeon Master's Guide to, as well as a small library full of novels. So give a warm episode 201 welcome to the Master of Storytelling, Robin Laws. Hey everybody, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to start off just getting to, to know you a little bit and uh, you know, so make sure everybody understands the gravitas of the situation here. So. I will attempt to be Cronkitean. Beautiful. Uh, so let's start um, with uh, just your, your background in gaming. How did you first start getting into gaming? How did that come about? What's all that? What, how... Okay, let's try and do the least convoluted version of this narrative. <laughs> um, I always thought of myself as a writer, but until I started doing it, I never thought of the hobby gaming market or adventure gaming uh, scene as a market for my work. Um, and that kind of happened by accident. In college, I got involved in an APA, Amateur Press Association, called Alarms and Excursion. And uh, for those of you who are uh, not as veteran as I am, what this was is a, a, a fanzine that was put together of different contributions that people would pay a buck a page to defray the cost of mimeographing the pages on different color paper stock, and there'd be a sort of a hand-drawn uh, cover on the, on the front, and you'd have your little zine uh, followed by everybody else's zines, and you'd comment back and forth to one another at the end of your content. And uh, so basically, this was a pre-internet internet forum <laughs> with a month lag between comments. And you would think this would prevent flame wars, but no, it did not. Um, and so at any rate, I got involved with this and wound up corresponding separately with some of the other people who were involved with this and encouraging people to play in a play-by-email uh, fantasy campaign that I was running based on rules of my own design. And some of the people uh, who got involved with this, I would send them a little uh, packet of information, and one guy sent me uh, you know, 12 pages of handwritten 
critique of my setting in different colored pen. Uh, but one of the other responses I got uh, was a letter from uh, two people. That said, Hi, I'm Jonathan Tweet, and I'm Mark Reinhagen. We have this exciting new product called Whimsy Cards, and we would like to play in your email campaign. Now, never heard again from Mark, but Jonathan did play for a while, and we struck up a real correspondence. And again, this is back in the age of pterodactyls when people wrote letters to each other. Um, <laughs> On stone tablets? And, yes. And so... Uh, Jonathan went through the experience of being with uh, Lion Rampant, uh, which produced Ars Magica and was sort of the seed company from which uh, White Wolf eventually grew, but Jonathan uh, sort of grew uh, disillusioned with the gaming scene and went off uh, on an adventure in Spain and changed jobs for a while. When he came back, he said, I want to produce an unpublishable game, and my inspiration for this is that Robin has written in Alarms and Excursions a little two-page article about what a William S. Burroughs role-playing game might be like. And so his unpublishable game eventually uh, caught the attention of John Nephew, who was also participating in Alarms and Excursions at that time, and that was a red flag to a bull, and he said, I'm going to publish your unpublishable game. In the meantime, I'd written a bunch of setting material uh, in these letters to Jonathan, uh, basically as a way of procrastinating from the uh, spec writing project that I was working on at the time, and these basically wound up verbatim in Over the Edge, as a lot of the setting material in Over the Edge, so uh, the cut-ups conspiracy, the terminal, all the weird drugs in Alamarha, and uh, is uh, w- w- what language level is your uh, podcast rated as? Typically lean towards clean when possible. Okay. I'm, so, a, te- I'm a teacher and students will inev- inevitably find it. Okay, so I won't tell that part of the anecdote. Okay. <laughs> uh, so basically that wound up verbatim in uh, Over the Edge, and also at about the same time I was writing in Alarms and Excursions about this crazy fantasy campaign that I was running where you were all tribesmen in this incredibly desolate region where there was uh, no religion and, and magic was dangerous because the gods were so nearby, these weird animal gods, that they were just terrifying and they created all these terrifying monsters and that caught the attention of Steve Jackson of Steve Jackson Games who out of the blue sent me writer's guidelines and a hey, how would you like to write a GURP supplement about your campaign at home? Uh, and I took him up on that, and that became uh, the book known as GURPS Fantasy II Adventures in the Madlands, uh, which was an incredibly polarizing GURPS book that half the people who got it thought it was genius, and the other half thought it was completely unplayable. Um, now, I knew that it was playable because I had been playing it. Um, <laughs> And anyway, at that time, even more so than today, the role-playing scene was very close-knit. America Online had appeared as their main way of getting on the Internet, and there was a a little industry forum on there, and uh, people were looking for freelancers to work on projects. And so before I knew it, uh, just as my video store day job disappeared, I was being contacted to write game material for people. And in short order, I was making a living at it, and I've been making a living as a writer in various fields, including uh, mostly gaming and fiction, but little sidelines into electronic games. I even wrote for Marvel Comics for a little while. It was a crazy little detour. Um, And so I've been doing this uh, as a full-time job ever since. And it sounds like uh, when you're describing how you got started, also having that small community maybe really helped you like learning what how to write things for each other and, and get that beginning part in with all the comments back and forth. 
Yes, absolutely. The, the, um, the great thing about, still today, about the hobby gaming industry is its aspect of the, hey, I've got a barn, hey, I've got a percentile system, let's put on a game company. And so uh, I, as a writer, get to hang out with people in all different phases of the, uh, you know, air quotes industry and learn about how everything works so that I yeah, am just as often to be hanging around in the bar after hours at a con with other pu- with publishers as with writers. And so you can get a sense of the, of the business aspect, uh, such as it is, pretty quickly. And there's that sense of shared community. And, you know, having worked, for example, in comics briefly, I can tell you that the gaming industry is a paradise on earth in terms of people feeling collegial and feeling all part of the same thing. When somebody else produces a cool game, you don't think, oh man, that guy has my job and that I should have that on. You think, oh wow, that's a really cool game. I, I might steal that idea later for another game down the line. And we have this feeling that we're all, we all like each other's stuff and that we're all contributing to the greater corpus of uh, uh, gaming uh, knowledge or art or whatever you want to call it and because of that I also sort of get more of a sense of how the publishing industry works and as I sort of tentatively make my way into other writing scenes for example the mainstream writing scene that I'm becoming acquainted with having just recently joined the Writers Union of Canada I can see that a lot of other um, writing scenes are used to a much more stratified system where the writers don't necessarily know how the business works, the agents are in one area, the publishers are over here, but here we're all sort of, everybody's doing everything, and consequently uh, the role-playing scene, or the gaming scene in general, I think is really the vanguard of where publishing is going to go, like stuff as soon as something comes along in in gaming, whether it be uh, print-on-demand, or uh, Kickstarter, uh, we're immediately, or you know, PDF uh, brick and mortar combinations. We're immediately, hey, what can we do with this? Uh, whereas a lot of other people in the more traditional publishing industry, their response to changing technology is, uh, and I think our response is a little more articulate, and that we're kind of pioneering things. So you know, they're really still completely terrified of piracy, whereas we've kind of figured, well piracy is irksome if you let yourself think about it, but that really thinking about it doesn't get you anywhere, and what you need to do is find new ways of uh, getting projects funded and making things happen, and you've got to focus on making cool things, rather than about lamenting the approach of the meteor that's about to wipe out your species. So, if, as I look back through your your resume, if you will, um, I, it, it seems like there's a theme in, in game design work that you've done a lot with setting and um, you know, story and some, some system design, that kind of stuff. Um, is there a reason that you, there's been that sort of focus on, on what you've done? Is yeah, for, well, first of all, it's that I originally thought of myself as a, as a writer of, of fiction or drama, and so uh, that's where my training, such as it is, uh, comes from, and my way of looking at what we're doing is looking at narrative in other fields and seeing how much of that can be applied to role-playing and how much of that doesn't apply and needs some sort of other solution. So my approach, first of all, is to think of it as an entertainment medium and to question the things that we've been doing for a while and ask, ask the question, is this really fun or is it just something we're habituated to doing? If the answer is B, how can we make this fun? And also, if we are, if the goal to, is to create a story, and uh, role playing is a 
vast field, and the goal is not always to create a story, but when it is, how do we steal the time-honored techniques from 2,500 years' worth of narrative development and apply them to what we're doing? Because Gary and Dave, when they created role-playing as we know it, were not setting out to create a new form of narrative. They were trying to create a cool new war game where the unit size was reduced from a platoon to one dude wearing a hat with stars on it. Uh, And as soon as you do that, as soon as you have a protagonist, and as soon as you have persistence, as soon as you give that guy some experience points and bring him back for another scenario, you have a story medium. And so given that insight, the question is, what other things can we steal from other story uh, forms in order to make our story form more fun and exciting and engaging? So of all the, the things that you've designed, system or, or, or setting or, whatever, or story, we're going to make you pick your favorite child. Which, which one do you like the most? Uh, the one I'm currently working on. <laughs> the one you, you, should know from that, you should know from that hack question that there's going to be a hack answer. Very good. Tracy, any other questions about Robin? Uh, so you're, you're talking about a bit about bringing a story. Do you think bringing the storytelling tools that we've had in, in, that, in that body of work to gaming, is, do you feel that's your specialty? Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd say that's definitely the, the it's my specialty, I guess it's what I'm known for, and it's also just the way that I think. So when I'm given a gaming problem to solve, that's the first thought process that I have. So for example, the gumshoe system, which is a system of investigative role playing, the question was how to make mystery games uh, faster and more fun, and specifically how to avoid the problem of you failed your library role, now the adventure is stymied until the GM comes up with a workaround 20 minutes later to get you the information that you should have gotten in the first place. And so the basic insight there starts with looking at how mystery stories work in other media. And for example, in, if you watch an episode of CSI, you never see a scene where the DNA expert goes, uh... Oh, man, I rolled a three. Uh, I forgot how to use the machine. I don't know what this DNA means. You never see that. Uh, You you see him find out what it means, and that moves you forward into the story. So then the design question was how to come up with this simple and elegant method in order to avoid that. And the simple and elegant method, just as in the old story, you know, doctor, it hurts when I do this, the answer is don't do that. So in uh, Gumshoe, if you have the right uh, skill and you look in the right place and do the right things, uh, you don't roll for information, you just get the information. And that has all sorts of other effects that you can build out from there, and that's what we've been exploring as we've created more Gumshoe games. But that's just an example of the thought process that leads to a game decision like that. And how is uh, telling stories within a game format different than just in a, in a book or a movie format? Because uh, I'm thinking of Hamlet's hit points where you try to remind that remind people that the players are at two levels. They're at their character level, and then they're at themselves watching the story unfold. Um, yeah, I think the, the main insight, first of all, is that you are if you're the GM, you are not storytelling. Uh, you with your players are story making that it is a collaborative exercise and that you are not imposing a pre-existing narrative on them you together are finding from a range of possible narratives what the actual narrative winds up being and it's always good to have in the back of your head what the big climax might be in case your players are kind of reactive um, that you can 
bring that out, but you also have to be able to adapt to what other people do. And we all have had, you know, the, our best sessions that we all remember and love are the ones where nobody expected anticipated where it was going but where it was going was way cooler than anything anybody individually had in mind and that's one of the unique things about the role playing forum is that every, everybody is both artist and audience at the same time and so when we borrow things from other media we have to keep that in uh, in mind because with the possible exception of improv comedy you don't see story making you see storytelling all right well since you're clearly, I mean, if you look at the work you've done, you have a, a level of respect in the industry uh, in storytelling. You've, you've, you have indie cred, and at the same time, your name is on the cover of the Dungeon Master's Guide, too, and you do stuff for Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, and so we're going to pick your brain a little bit about um, integrating story into D&D a little bit. But before that, we do need to thank our sponsor, uh, Continue Magazine. They are a quarterly magazine all about gaming. They talk about video games, board games, miniature games, role-playing games. Uh, if you're interested in any kind of game, check out Continue Magazine at ContinueMag.com. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. We're back, and now it's time to chat some more about the art of telling stories through games. So you talked a little bit about the difference between um, storytelling in a game and, and, and other areas. Um, one of the things that comes up in role-playing games is that because it's collaborative and you have all these people, it's sometimes hard to get the story to involve all of those people. Do you have any sort of tips on making sure everybody has that, that role to play? Right, and this goes back to the... Um, Insights that I first published in a book called Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, and that wound up in the third edition Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide Two, uh, and then in 4E are, were hard hard baked by other writers into the uh, core uh, original uh, DMG, uh, and which example, for example, is my objective when I uh, come up with things. I want to see them not just stay in my books, but to get into the bloodstream of gaming, right? That's victory for a game designer to see your ideas uh, more widely adopted. And you can't be more widely adopted than to be in an iteration of D&D. And the insight came from doing seminars at Gen Con and at other conventions, which were GM troubleshooting panels. Mm -hmm. And the main question that always came up from people who wanted their games uh, to be better was, what do I do about this guy in this in my group who isn't playing the way my expectations of how he should play <laughs> are going? And so it's like, how do I get my guys who only want to fight to role-play more? Or how do I get my guys to stop role-playing and get in the proper fight? Um, and from that insight, of course, is 
gosh golly, people who play role-playing games get different things out of out of them, and that we all have a different range of tastes. And the Robin's Laws book, uh, not my title, incidentally, um, types players in an admittedly sort of crude fashion, but it's the first step to asking yourself, what are these people in my group want and uh, Sally may be very interested in hitting things with their axe uh, Bob may want to come up with the most risk averse tactical plan possible and uh, uh, Janie may want to uh, spin off crazy uh, verbal farragos uh, as her character blathers her way through encounters with uh, tradesmen and uh, whoever else and so you sort of uh, the first step to engaging everybody is to ask yourself what is everybody engaged by? And uh, once you start doing that, you can uh, find out what carrots people respond to and what sticks make them run in a useful direction. And so it's a matter of understanding the people in the room with you, understanding that their tastes evolve over time, that they might differ from one session to the next. There might be one session where people are extremely engaged with a tactical situation, and then the next weekend everybody's uh, tired and uh, cranky and uh, you know maybe just sort of some lighthearted role playing is what you need and so it's a matter of reading other people uh, which sounds like a completely elementary thing but reading other people is not necessarily a skill that all of us in the geek tribe come with out of the box some of us have to think about it in an analytical way and learn how to do it uh, and once you start thinking about it in an analytical sort of what is the mathematical equation of the emotions that my friends are thinking <laughs> and then you have that break breakthrough and you go oh right okay that's how that works mm-hmm. and this may even be something that can translate into the rest of your life right um, so, so that's basically it is pay attention to the other people in your group and see what they seem to like and do more of that and less of the other stuff. Uh, so specifically, when you, when you sit down and, and plan out a game session or a, maybe a campaign, how what are the steps you go through to construct your story? Um, I like to improvise a lot and to fly by the seat of my pants. And so my question to myself is always, how little can I possibly prepare and still have a satisfying and interesting game? Now, I am unusual in that as a professional game designer, I have to subject my extremely patient players sometimes to game experiences that are not tailored to them. So, for example, uh, the thing that I'm designing now is more of a sandbox-oriented campaign. It's for something called Dreamhounds of Paris, which is a Trail of Cthulhu uh, mammoth source book that I'm working on, which is both the Paris book and the Dreamlands book. And the idea is you were playing the major figures of the Surrealist movement in Paris at the late 20s and early 30s after they discovered that they can manipulate and change the Dreamlands. And so the whole idea is, what do you, as Salvador Dali and Louis Bunuel and René Magritte and Marcel Duchamp, do when you're let loose in the Dreamlands to wreak whatever havoc you want? Now, my group is not necessarily the best group to play a sandbox game because of the personal dynamics of a couple of the dominant players and that they're uh, happiest when I'm leading them more than I might do with a different group. Uh, So uh, I do sometimes ignore the... uh, Manifest uh, desires and tendencies of my players in order to have an object lesson and how might how this might work for other people. So when things go a little pear shaped, uh, on one hand I'm thinking, oh, how do I make 
uh, this player happier now that I've made him unhappy. But on the other hand, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, this is great. I made him unhappy. This is a useful object lesson for a sidebar that I'm going to have to write. Um, so how, how I do it in practice is uh, sort of a little abstracted from the sure. way that I would recommend other people who are not doing this for a living and don't have super patient groups would go about doing it. And so part of my ability to give good advice to people also depends on events like this where people ask questions about how to make things better in their game. And over the years, since I first started doing those, uh, maybe coincidentally, I would hope maybe not entirely coincidentally, the questions that people ask change. And so at Gen Con, I get less, what do I do about people in this group? And then maybe sort of higher order questions but if you go to a place that doesn't get a lot of gaming cons and is more, you know, because we have the creme de la creme of gaming here at Gen Con, but if you go to a, a local con where people aren't used to gaming guests and you have a jam troubleshooting session, you will go back in time to the mid-90s and what do I do about this guy in my group who isn't playing right? So when talking about stories, a lot of times you may have a story that goes across several uh, sessions. Is it necessary that each session, do you think, goes and adds to that main story, or can they have side stories going off as, as a break or something else? Um, you may have a very discursive group or, or a very sort of sandboxy game where going off and doing one crazy thing in one session that doesn't really impact anything is fine by them. So it, it depends on the sort of uh, narrative style that you're trying to emulate. Right? If you're doing epic fantasy, you probably don't want to have the... Uh, session where one where the uh, paladin decides that he would like to have a sideline as a pig farmer and <laughs> goes off and starts a pig ranch sure. that, that would you know that would get cut even from game of thrones uh, <laughs> so uh, but in uh, another game that's sort of more kooky and picaresque that may be more fun the weird complications of the paladin starting his pig farm might be more interesting than any grand epic narrative and it may be that your players pull you in a direction you didn't anticipate they you may be planning to do a grand tolkien-esque narrative but they may you know show up and consciously or otherwise bend it toward being a jack fancy and picaresque narrative um so you've talked about the idea of of knowing your players and, and what they're looking for, but just because I know that one guy likes to, to hit things with the sword doesn't necessarily give me story beats. So where are you going when you when you come up with sort of inspiration and ideas for, you know, this is what's happening and where it's happening and how it's happening and who the villains are and all that? Right. How does that all come together? Um, well, you, you, can, you start off with a story premise, just as you would in any medium, and then uh, as you develop that a little, you sort of the next step is to then go through your checklist of things that you think people are going to respond to. And so if you have a narrative that's all about intrigue backstage at the palace and you know that Janie likes to hit things with their axe, you've got to, okay, where am I going to fit in an opportunity where she gets to hit things with her axe? So then you, okay, well, maybe there's... Uh, a bunch of uh, assassins break in in the middle of the night. Janie gets the chance to, you know, kill some ninjas with with an axe, which of course one should do on a regular basis. And uh, and then that can then fold into the conspiratorial narrative because the other players, the guys who like talking, can use. Well, we we killed off those ninjas for you, so surely you will uh, agree to our uh, trade demands, right? And so uh, it's often that this a sort of a second level 
questioning that you do either formally before you play, but really more often on the spur of the moment, right? That it's more likely that you're going to plan this uh, conspiratorial session, not think about Janie and her uh, axe-swinging needs, and then see Janie getting kind of bored, and then you think, okay, time for the ninjas. Um, and so uh, it's a matter of uh, being able to adjust on the fly, and you know, your uh, then the question is, you know, where are my ninja stats? So a game like D and D, where the stats in whatever edition are uh, very elaborate, you will need to use some sort of tool to uh, bring out the the. To, to have the people to sort of jump in to be the ninjas, whether you're just grabbing the cobalt stats and you know changing the chrome, or whether you are quickly using an online tool to design ninjas on the fly, uh, that still gets to you where you want to go. And then you can sort of take all those things and, and build out from there, right? Right. And then you start asking questions of where do the ninjas come from, and now you got to travel to that place, and it just sort of keeps building and. As you in- incorporate more things for more players, it sounds like you just sort of keep building more and more. Yeah, and, and the result is inevitably more ragged than a narrative that you would see in a novel that's tightly plotted or an ongoing television series, unless that television series is True Blood. Um, <laughs> uh, but because uh, that that's structurally, if you want to see a TV show that is completely structured like a role-playing game where the GM is frantically trying to keep all of the disparate players who've gone off in completely different directions interested by throwing weirdo uh, <laughs> subplots at them on the fly, that's True Blood. True Blood is uh, very... It's secret role playing or not so secret role playing roots really shine through. Uh, so, do you ever construct stories for your games that that are sort of large arch, arcing stories? You know, uh, I just did a campaign that went from first level to thirtieth level in fourth edition, right? And, and I had a vision from the beginning of where it was going to end. Is that how you construct stories, or do you always sort of try to let it flow organically? Um, on a practical level, I never run something that's the equivalent of 30 levels of sure. D&D because I have to work on a number of projects so that my games wind up basically if they last uh, I think the longest recent campaign I've run was basically we had 20 episodes of a, my drama system uh, game and but more often it, you know it's kind of short and contained uh, some of the games will have a, a story arc sort of implied within them there's a an upcoming game I'm doing for Pelgrane based on Jack Vance's science fiction stories. It's called The Guy in Reach, and it assumes that you will play a short story arc. And the idea is you all want vengeance against the interstellar uh, enemy Quandos Vorn. And the way you create the campaign in, in an improvisatory way is at the first episode when you're creating your characters, you decide what horrible thing Quandos Vorn did to you, why it is hard to combat Quandos Vorn, the, th- the weakness that you have that Quandos Vorn can exploit. And as you all create that guy, uh, that determines the shape of the narrative, but the inevitable shape, you know, the end point is finally, you, after a series of exciting adventures, you catch up with Quandos Vorn. And so, like, you know, in classic story formation, the ending of a story is implied in its initial scenes. So you set up a problem, and you may... Uh, extend that problem infinitely, uh, well not infinitely but over a long period of time or over a short period of time and eventually resolve it. A lot of games though allow you to sidestep that entirely and just they create a core activity that you do in a repetitive manner and is satisfying whether you go anywhere or not. And of course D&D is the archetype of that with its experience point system where you are always working to level up and to get magic items to uh, 
allow you to do more cool stuff. And there are lots of people who are perfectly happy having the, na- the narrative remain at the rudimentary level that uh, Dave and Gary would recognize where the only real story points are, do I kill the monsters in this room and take their stuff? <laughs> or do I kill the monsters in this room and take their stuff? And that, too, is a narrative, albeit a very uh, simple and sort of episodic one. Sure. Although you can tell a, a longer-form story with with the end in mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The same system. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you can... Uh, set it up so that you know you just have to go into the dungeon and get stronger before you tackle the big problem that we set up at the beginning or you, you can go make get them, go get the MacGuffin yeah or you can make each encounter that they run into uh, impact the broader narrative of whatever the major overarching goal is okay uh, then we have about 25 minutes or so to uh, any questions from the audience that you have uh, if you let us know that you want to uh, ask a question of Robin or, or us, I suppose. Um, and we have a couple of prizes as well. And I think what we'll do, and I didn't check with Tracy on this, but I think what we'll do is um, if you ask a question, give us your name, I'll write it down, and then you'll be in for a chance to, to win uh, an autographed Dungeon Master's Guide 2. Um, as our Autographed and personalized. And personalized. Um, and... For the runner-up, I have a copy of uh, the latest Driss novel. So, yes. Um, I'm Alex. I have a question about: um, Have you ever run into situations where the mechanics of the game you're working in kind of limit where you can go with the story? Um, for example, Fourth Edition Dungeons and Dragons has a really trimmed-down skill set, and if I want to run a CSI game in Eberron, um, I'm kind of limited and I run into a lot of roadblocks where, you know, like you were saying earlier, um, you know, I don't find the DNA sample. They rolled a one when they were in this library. Um, What is your problem solving process when you're like, okay, I'm coming into a project where the skill set or the rules mechanics are already a certain way. I know I want to use this rule set, but I want to go this direction in a story that um, the rule set doesn't lend itself naturally to. Apart from just rule zeroing it and saying I'm going to make this up and just say it happens. Right. Well, the exact example that you cite is in my chapter in the Dungeon Master's Guide 2 for 4E. Because 4E is sort of an interesting beast in that, in one hand, it is a much more tightly defined technical skirmish game. But it has a free-flowing indie-style narrative uh, kind of wedded to it because one of the concepts behind it is they don't—they decided they didn't ever want anybody spending a bunch of their precious points on something that didn't impact combat because they wanted to avoid the syndrome of the guy who spends all of his skill points on being the best brewmaster and then is kind of dead weight during a fight because their goal was to balance D&D. Now, uh, the question then becomes, is it desirable to balance D&D, which I suspect is a topic for an entire other podcast. Um, but you can bolt a layer of advice onto that. So the advice with that question is, uh, you should never ask for a skill role in 4E or any other role-playing game if you cannot envision an interesting result either with either failure or success. So if you run into a situation where you can only imagine an interesting result when you are successful, and almost all information gathering fits into that, I would argue, um, you just don't ask for the role. 
you can just say, oh, well, using your pre-established expertise in uh, uh, archmagery or whatever skill it is that you're using, uh, you can see that the sigil on the wall means that this ancient civilization of illithids originally created this complex. And that, and that is much more interesting than, eh, you don't know what it is. Um, and so uh, just because the rules seem to be structured to work in a certain way doesn't mean that you uh, lose your judgment over how and when to apply them. And so uh, it is definitely true that different rule sets reward different play and create different assumptions in the players' minds of how things are supposed to happen, but that doesn't mean that you just have to accept those assumptions. You can build other uh, layers of play onto that and emphasize the things that work really well and de-emphasize the things that are causing you trouble. And it reminds me a little bit, uh, one of the big pieces of advice that came out a lot when people were struggling with how to deal with skill challenges is what happens when they fail, does the, does the story stop, right? Um, and, and a lot of the advice that came out at that time focused on the idea that um, failure at the skill challenge, or in this case, failure at the skill, doesn't necessarily mean that the action failed. Maybe it, maybe it succeeded with a complication, which can actually lead to better storytelling because now the heroes are facing some sort of uh, obstacle to overcome. Yeah, that, that's the fail-forward concept yeah. where the failure leads to another interesting obstacle for people to deal with, but sometimes you can't think of a fail-forward. You can just think of a fail, in which case, don't ask them to roll. Yeah. yeah. just want to comment. I use something similar like What's the that. name? Oh, Andrew. I use something similar. When they fail something, they... they they, it takes a while for them to do it, basically. So if they find out, oh, this guy's the one in, who's in, who we have to take take out before the before he assassinates. We have only one chance now. We just have enough time for that. We can't prepare. We've got to go right now. If they fail that challenge or skill or whatever, right? And it, and that's now. an interesting way to handle it because uh, a lot of times making something take more time as a penalty just means that the penalty is we are all bored while it takes more time. Yeah. Whereas you're turning that on its head and saying that you get to get useful prep time if you succeed, but you have to yeah. go now. So both of those give them interesting things that move the story forward rather than a choice of boring. Yeah. Or they get the information, have to go right now and really stretch, you know, really work hard to get there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's Josh. Robin, do you have any uh, additional thoughts since the publication of DMG2 on, on the skill challenge mechanic? You both just talked about outcomes mm -hmm. a little bit. What about the mechanic itself? What I found myself doing when I was running 4E was uh, putting a lot more onus on the players to describe what it was they were doing and to make it much more of a uh, kind of a narrative word-building exercise than just here's these particular obstacles that you have to overcome. So, for example, uh, you go on a long and arduous journey. Each of you contributes in a significant way to the uh, survival of the party while you're going through the desert, and some of you uh, wind up uh, in a disadvantageous position. So tell me what it is that you do to contribute to the survival of the party. And then I would go around round-robin style, and everybody would have to think of something cool and defining that fit their character that they might have done in what otherwise would sort of be a boring transitional scene. And then they would roll, and the question would... They, they would not 
it would not be that they would embarrassingly fail to do these defining things, but then, as you suggested earlier, there would be some other negative consequence that it, you know, you saved everybody from the uh, ravening beasts uh, that, that came in the night, but you uh, lost your uh, your staff or you used up a couple of charges on your uh, uh, orb or whatever, whatever the example would be. And so in that case, they had the leeway to create things in the world and to abstract things that otherwise might be uh, carried out in the rules. So you can just describe a fight with the caravan guards without actually playing out the fight with the caravan guards because that's not the point. It's just that you're trying to make the uh, emotional statement that it cost you something and it was hard and challenging to get from story point A to story point B. And one thing I found with the skill challenge system was that it helped uh, take the RP elements that often didn't give any XP and start putting them in the same sort of system as everything else so they didn't feel like they had to go fight monsters in order as much in order to, to level up and, right. and that. I mean, when I first saw the, the skill challenge system, I felt, felt at home because in a, uh, a lot of ways it kind of resembled something that I had done in a game called Hero Quest. And so I just kind of poured it over the way that I ran uh, the, challenge, the equivalent of challenges in Hero Quest to what we were doing in 4E. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Eric, go ahead. Eric, do uh, <laughs> uh, you have any tips for improvisation? Yeah, uh, specifically for for D fourth edition or in general. Um, for D and D fourth edition, uh, sort of think ahead of time in a detached way. What uh, you know, prepare one or two or three possible encounters, but don't think of the narrative implications of those encounters until you need them. So. Uh, each level of 4E sort of implies there's a certain world of monsters that you can possibly draw from. Now, you might take a standard monster and reskin them uh, when it comes time to do that, but it's just, okay, so I've got you know one encounter that's sort of a long uh, grind against a solo creature who's uh, hiding in a cave, and you have to get him out of the cave in order to draw him out and kill him, and here's more of a fight with a bunch of dudes where there, you know, there's a volcano over here, but you haven't really thought of why you need those things, right? Because, uh, you know, those fights are the bread and butter of 4E. So as the uh, players then follow whatever objectives they've come up for themselves or whatever objectives you've laid out in front of them, all of a sudden you will go, okay, well, here's why they would have to fight the creature in the cave, or, oh, it makes sense instead for the, the fight with a bunch of dudes. And so you then bring those out. So improvisation, if you, it is not uh, and probably that part of improv, having the creature stats in the encounter, nobody can, nobody's really great necessarily at doing that off the top of their heads. So that you need to have that in place. You may also find that there are other things that other people improvise well that are come as a challenge to you. So if you have trouble coming up with credible names for characters, either you know have a page open on your browser of you know, medieval sounding names or whatever it is that you can grab or generate a bunch of random names, however you create names, have a list of things already on hand or a list of, you know, uh, just some descriptions of places so that once you need an interesting place for them to go, y you've got whatever it is. So know what your improvising weaknesses are and cheat by preparing to improvise. Um, do you run some risk when you do that, though? Uh, you know, the idea of preparing three or four encounters and then finding where they fit in later, because then if your players get wise, 
do they worry? Is there some concern that their their decisions no longer matter? Because no matter what they do, they're going to run into that beast in the cave. Um, well, I, I think the truth is that we all know that whatever form of D and D we're playing the encounters that the DM prepares are the encounters he's going to use. Um, And in fact, this allows you to give the players the freedom to decide through their actions what the meaning of that encounter is. So the question is not, do you fight the beast in the cave, but what are the consequences of why are you fighting the beast in the cave? What do you stand to gain from it? And how does that further your uh, objective? So really it enables you to do the opposite, which is to make sure that the players are uh, gratified by their triumph over the creature in the cave. Yeah, um, the name? Gary. I've uh, gotten back into this after a long absence started last year. And what I'm noticing is back from the original active slash, we are getting into more storytelling and the game system is what is enabling us to do the story. Is that what you're saying also? Or, you know, as a group story and we're using the rules to help us. Yeah, that's definitely the, the way that uh, game design has evolved is toward enabling not only the uh, fun tactical stuff that we uh, call hack and slash, but also creating a broader meaning or context for what you're doing. Much more interesting. Yes, I do too, and and most people do, and that's why you do it. Although, you know, there are certainly groups who still, you know, love the Iron Man thing of let's just have a bunch of fights, and that's, you know, I don't want to... Often those are sort of cast in a dichotomy where the person who is describing whatever style is privileging their style over somebody else's style. But I think you're absolutely right that in general, uh, gaming has integrated story a lot more than when you uh, set it down earlier. Name? My name is Joel. Speaking of integrating story, what would you recommend as far as doing that, not just for the consequences of combat, but during combat itself, rather than having to be more purely tactical? Right. So if you have worked out what your consequences of combat are, you can then set victory conditions that depend on particular things that happen tactically in play. So if you are trying to, if the reason you're fighting the creature in the cave is that you need the ancient manuscript that's back further in the cave behind the creature, you can then build moments that they have to fulfill in the encounter other than just killing the creature. So uh, once the creature comes out of the cave, the manuscript is dislodged and is uh, you know, sort of teetering on the edge of a shelf and is possibly going to plunge into the lava pit. So which of the characters stops fighting the creature in the cave in order to go and make the die rolls necessary to pull the, uh, the manuscript off the shelf? So you can sort of build those story points into the encounters and that makes the encounters more memorable and creates a tactical element that makes the people who are more focused on the tactics engaged with the story point as well. And so that uh, kind of integrates both sides of that equation. Uh, Jeremy? Um, due to like scheduling conflicts and things like that, we've started in our group to try to do online gaming, like the Google Hangouts. And we're noticing some quirks of it. Like when you're around a table, you can all, everybody can talk here and there, and we're finding that not everybody's getting enough time to speak and things like that. Right. Have you experienced this with this medium, and do you have any tips on how to construct a narrative as a GM? 
Right. All, all of the following blazing insights are based on precisely one Google Hangout game of, uh, of a game of my uh, the system I'm currently developing, Drama System, which is all about talking and personal interaction. So take this with a grain of salt. Uh, but uh, And the way that game is structured, uh, the structure of the game forces everybody to take equal shares of moving the drama forward and taking part in it. And so it sort of naturally creates a dynamic that works really well in Google Hangout. If you're playing something else, you as GM really have to pay attention to who's getting to do things. And visually, Google Hangout does something really slick, which is that it pays attention to who is talking and they get the big face and everybody else is down below and so if you are seeing somebody's face big face more than somebody else's you need to do the usual sort of tricks to draw people out and address character you know players uh, and that's something you have to be more proactive about i have to say that google hangout is really promising uh, we'll find out with you know tools that make that work and you'll come up with protocols for uh, how to make that work um, it's way better certainly than trying to play by chat where people's attention drifts and they've got six tabs open and they respond to you ten minutes after you type something to them it really does create more of a, a face-to-face dynamic and so it's really a matter of being conscious of that issue and uh, being conscious of drawing out the people who are disengaged or shy and so you need to look at not only the big face but all of the little faces and see whose uh, attention is wandering. It can be challenging in that little pixelated image at the bottom of the frame but basically it's like you know learning a new social skill for an incredible crazy new Dick Tracy uh, phone watch kind of system. Thank you. Um, just a comment, Andrew again. Andrew. I do something similar with Skype and Map Tool. I run an online game most Fridays. I'm actually missing a session today because of this, being at Gen Con. But basically, it does. It takes a little while, and you have to make sure your group is kind of a kind of okay with you kind of taking a little bit of charge of, you know, okay, okay, you've had enough. Next person, who what are they going? What are you going to do? And kind of keep an eye on who hasn't done anything recently. Who should be, you know, and who should be the one talking now? You know? Alex, um, in D and D two, I really like um, when you talk about the flashbacks, flash forwards, flash sideways, flash to the far realm story stuff. But in a medium where you're generating the story at the table in the moment. What kind of tips can you give to DMs um, for structuring their overarching narrative so that when you flash to the side um, and they, you know, the guys in the beginning fail to defeat the mind flayers and suddenly two months later they show up at the party, how can you get structure your story so that those arcs make sense if you're jumping the spotlight and the focus around in different times and places? Uh, the trick to that is to always make sure that your discontinuities, the flashbacks and forwards, are little bits of flavor, that they're grace notes that tell us more about the characters and fill in more of who they are rather than things that determine the course of your plot. Because you want to make sure that, you know, if you have a flash forward to them defeating the Mind Flayers, well, that's really hard to make sure that all of the events of your campaign lead to that moment. But if you just have a sort of a quick, ambiguous flash to a moment when they're facing a dread enemy that you do not define, that gives you the wiggle room to keep a 
uh, multi-branching narrative alive. Um, and just like you know, the, when you go back to the past, the point is not to do something that uh, necessarily determines the direction of your plot, but to explain why the paladin acts like this, or to uh, to go back to a previous point to just give somebody a little spotlight time, and when, when realistically their character shouldn't be really doing anything, but the player should get something to do. So think of them as little sidelights that. Uh, because and that is often when you see a TV show where there's those little flash forwards. That's you know usually what they tend to be. They're not huge reveals. They're things that give you color and dimension to the characters. And I mean, like the example you gave with the mind flayers, right? You could do a flashback or a flash forward wherein they're fighting these mind flayers, and then oops, they accidentally killed them at another time as well. But if you leave it, not speci- no, it's not necessarily this mind flayer then maybe it's a different group of mind players and now you get to tell this interesting story about how they killed the mind player in the flashback and now suddenly there's a new group of mind players and how did that interrelate right and and indeed that's how flash forwards tend to work right they tend to deceive you uh, by creating one set of expectations and then undermine and then the, the actual reveal is what that really meant which is the opposite of what you thought it meant I think we're out of time for questions time to wrap things up We'd like to say uh, thanks to our sponsor, Continue Magazine, to Robin D. Laws for being here. Robin, uh, where can people find out more about you if they, or what projects are you working on you want to talk about before we go? Um, things to look for include my uh, uh, new uh, Pathfinder Tales uh, novel, uh, Blood of the City, uh, which is a uh, gritty urban adventure of family betrayal. If you like horror, uh, look uh, uh, to the Green Ronin booth for New Tales of the Yellow Sign, which is my uh, collection of short stories based on the uh, King in Yellow mythos of Robert W. Chambers. Uh, you can come to the Pelgrane stand to look for various exciting uh, gumshoe uh, products, uh, including Tartarus, which is your chance to uh, revise the disappointments of a uh, certain uh, science fiction uh, blockbuster that uh, was full of idiot plotting. You will get to go to a bad planet and find out why the previous team of people did a bunch of stupid things and hopefully not do those stupid things. Uh, and speaking of podcasting, uh, go to iTunes or to www.kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com for my new podcast that I do with my compadre Kenneth Height, where we talk about stuff. And we'd also like to thank our Gen Con audience. If anybody wants to get a hold of us, we are available at thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call into the voicemail line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. That's 919-BIZ-TOME. And you can find show notes on the website at thetomeshow.com. And that is episode 201, where we took our gaming stories to a whole new level with Robin D. Laws at Gen Con in this episode of... I'm on the wall.